Good morning. Well, in Hebrews 11.38, the writer tells us that there are men that have walked by faith in the midst of persecution of whom the world is not worthy. And Ignatius of Antioch certainly fits the bill. So Ignatius was born in 35 AD, which is pretty wild to think about, just a few years after Christ's life. And during his life, he'd become the third bishop of Antioch. But later in his life, Ignatius was imprisoned and charged with the crime of atheism. Now how funny is that? Atheism. Because he refused to bow the knee to Roman gods. And so his death, his penalty, is death. But while imprisoned, Ignatius wrote to a bunch of his friends and advocates to pray for his death rather than plan for his rescue. Just listen to what he writes. Let none of you who are in Rome help the devil. Rather be on my side. That is, on the side of God. I persuade you to listen to me. For though I am alive while I write to you, yet I am eager to die. My love, Jesus Christ, has been crucified, and there is no fire in me desiring to be fed to wild beasts. But there is within me one that lives and speaks, saying to me inwardly, Come to the Father. I have no delight in corruptible food, nor in the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of life which is the Lord himself, the Son of God. I desire the living water, incorruptible, eternal life. And so his friends listened to this letter. They didn't come to rescue their friend. So Ignatius was brutally murdered by wild animals at the hands of the Romans around 107 AD. And he actually becomes the first known post-New Testament martyr in the entire world world. Now some of you may be thinking right now that this is the most deflating way to start a sermon. <laughs> but I assure you that there's beauty found in this one martyr's life. Because here's the thing that Ignatius of Antioch knew and what we must desperately know this morning. Death is a promotion. It's not a curse. It's a blessing for the Christian. And so Ignatius knew full well that he would one day obtain the glory of the Lord. And so what did he do? He stood firm in the faith. He rested on the eternal comfort of his maker. And we're going to see this fleshed out this morning from our text. Because God's people have been called through the gospel to obtain the glory of Jesus. So the seventh reason Jesus came to die, that we would obtain the glory of the risen Christ. So this hope of future glory is the anchor for every single Christian to actively stand firm without ceasing, delighting, comforted as we await his return, no matter the circumstances that come, no matter the pressures that may arise, no matter the fears that wage war in our hearts and in our minds. God is faithful and we are truly able to take him at his word. And so that's where we're going this morning. And so if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if uh, you do not have a Bible with you, there's one down below the uh, chairs in front of you. And you can turn to page 989. 
And as you do, you will also notice that in the outline, we have three points that we're going to be working through this morning. Number one, the context of obtaining glory. Two, the content of obtaining glory. And three, the application of obtaining glory. So let's begin with one, the context of obtaining glory. And we are going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, as we look at 2 Thessalonians this morning, there are two major themes that run throughout the entire book. So the first major theme that we're going to see is, A, the reality of persecution. Just look at verse 4 with me. Therefore, so because of your growing faith, right, from verse 3, because of your growing faith and love, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Why? Here it is. For or because of your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are currently enduring. So we clearly see here that Paul and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, who are writing the book along with Paul, are writing to these Christians who are being persecuted. Now, if you remember, persecution is not a new concept for the church in Thessalonica. Just think back to the book of Acts. Right? In Acts 17, Paul and his companions, they travel over to Thessalonica, and when they get there, Paul starts preaching in the synagogue. He goes back three times. Right, Each time he goes, he reasons with the Jews, he unpacks the word of God, preaches Christ crucified, and what's the response? Jewish people coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, Acts 17.6 17, is quite interesting. Right? It recalls this uproar that begins to be uh, displayed in the crowds. Right? In this town, people aren't too happy. There are new Christians in this city. Just listen to this one encounter with Jason from chapter 17. It says, They, the enraged crowds, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason. So they drag this new Christian into the street, they take his money as security, and leave him there. So you see, from the very beginning of the foundations of this church in Thessalonica, there's danger and peril. So here's the precedent in Thessalonica. You're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. And it doesn't stop there. And here's the proof in 2 Thessalonians. The persecution rages on. Now just notice that Paul isn't concerned with just the mundane of this particular situation. Paul's concern isn't to emphasize the immensity of their burdens, their major burdens, but that's not his goal. He doesn't apologize for them, does he? No, his greatest concern in the midst of their trials, their persecution, is that these Christians would stand firm. That they'd endure with faith in the midst of all their hardship. That's why he's boasting in them in verse 4. They are persecuted and they are excelling still more. And so he's so delighted that they're running well. Now before we move forward into our next section with this context, let me just ask you a question. 
Is that where your heart and mind naturally wander when you experience grief, pain, and anguish in your own life? Are you prone to apologize for the trials that come into your life, the ones that God brings in the life of your family or others? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I do not want to dilute the significance and the weight of the painful situation, but we must have a healthy balance of what the scriptures tell us about understanding the trials of the Christian. Yes, we are saddened by the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world, and yet we must glory in our God who uses all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So these trials are purposeful. They're bringing opportunity to exercise faith and joy in his promises, in our good and faithful God. And here it is, we're growing. We're being sanctified and one day glorified. So not only is Paul instructing in light of their persecution, right? but the second major theme that we see in 2 Thessalonians is be the reality of Christ's coming. So follow along with me and let's continue reading In verse 5, let's pick up and read to the end of verse 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels." in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty awesome, isn't that? Now I want to highlight just three main features of what Paul unpacks for the church from this one section here, right? So number one, Christ will return as judge. He will return to judge. Two, unbelief leads to eternal destruction. And three, belief in Christ culminates in the name of Jesus being glorified in his people. Now just look with me at verse five again. And we want to see how God is declared the judge of both the wicked and the righteous. And so he writes, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So God will judge the righteous, that they would be found worthy of the kingdom, but also, Paul tells us, of the judgment on the wicked. So verse 8 and 9, it says, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might. So he's the judge of those who love God, Those who have placed their hope and trust in Christ alone without the fear of condemnation, right? But he's also the righteous, holy judge of those who reject the gospel, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And for them, there's eternal destruction. The wrath of God is poured out on the unbelieving. 
right? Just as verse 9 sadly proclaims, they're away from the presence of the Lord. So that's one. Number two, important thing we must understand. So not only is God judged, but as seen from verse 8 and 9, unbelief in the gospel of Christ, not putting your faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, leads to death. It's the most horrifying display. Wrath on the unbelieving. And three, the final observation, and it's absolutely critical for us, It's belief in Jesus culminates in the name of Christ being glorified in his saints. So Jesus' excellence is on full display. Full display in those who reach the end. Finally free from the weight of sin and freed from their corrupted bodies. Just look at verse 10. Right, It says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So those who believe in Jesus experience Christ being marveled at, glorified in his people, which is similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53. It says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So one day, believers will take off this present sin-torn body and put on the resurrected body, experiencing the glory of his might forever. Now before we move on into our second point this morning, the content of the reason, we must recognize that Paul takes a little bit of a detour, a little bit of a hiatus from this Thanksgiving that we've just read, right into chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So in that portion, Paul's unpacking a question that he's received from the church in Thessalonica. And so he's giving an answer about the timing of the Lord's return. And so 2, 1 through 2 highlights the apparent future rebellion of the man of lawlessness, which is quite interesting and also very complicated. And then he looks to encourage the believers of the certainty of their end. What's their end? Glory. Just look at 2, 11 and 12. We see the end for the lost, which is then contrasted in our passage this morning. Right? So in verses 13 through 17, we're going to see this contrast come together. But look with me at 2, 11 through 12. Paul writes, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this is sadly the destiny of those who willingly delight in the creature rather than the creator. God gives the wicked up to their desires. They're condemned due to their unbelief, their unwilling hardened hearts, and they enjoy the pleasures of unrighteousness than enjoying the pleasures of God forevermore. But here's the great thing that we get to look at. Jesus came to die, right? Praise God. He flips the script, and we see spoken here to the church in Thessalonica of the glory that is to be revealed to his saints. Just look at what he says next. Follow along with me. Let's read chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, 
who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now Paul begins by saying, but here. Did you notice that in verse 13? Just see the contrast that he's building between the unbeliever that's mentioned, right, in those verses 11 and 12 that we just read. The lost are perishing. Same as what we saw in chapter 1, verse 9. They, the unbelieving, are going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. They're separated from the presence of God without joy, without glory, with only having destruction forever. But that isn't how he describes the future for the believer, is it? No, the Christians promise to receive a salvation that is guaranteed by God's electing love toward them. Right, Verse 13, we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because, so we're giving thanks to you because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now my question is, why does Paul say he's giving thanks for them, right? That could be difficult to understand. Let's be clear, it's because God chose them from the beginning. This language that Paul uses here harkens back directly to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it's because the Lord loves you. So just hear what God says to his people here. He says, I love you because I love you. (laughs) I chose to love you. So if you're like, that doesn't make any sense, that's probably a good place to be. (laughs) Now let me just pause here and just highlight how radically different God's choice is from ours. Right? God's not like us in his choosing and in his dealings. Just think of our own relationships, right? We love based on a whole bunch of things. We choose to hang out with those who have similar interests or age or financial prowess or athletic ability, but not God. That's not how God chooses. No, God has chosen a particular people, not on the basis of what they bring to the table, because if that was the case, no one would ever be called. No, God's choosing is clear from Deuteronomy. He loves you because he loves you. It's a choice independent from your Bible reading. It's independent from your good works or your church attendance. Your performance isn't a prerequisite of God's love. It's the outpouring of it. And this is the explanation that the Bible gives us. This is what God's done. And we must accept it joyfully. It's clear. So Paul tells us that God chose his people, and he chose his people as the first fruits to be saved. Now, what does it exactly mean when Paul says, as first fruits? We don't usually talk about first fruits in our modern context, right? But the context here seems to suggest that this phrase should be translated as from the beginning. So God chose you from the beginning. From the beginning, he chose to save a people. But this isn't a shocking new claim, 
right? He's not just making this up on a fly in one specific letter. No, just listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm, say, what I'm saying this morning. So just because the Bible's clear does not mean that there's not a responsibility on the part of man. I'm not saying we're walking puppets. No, not at all. God is entirely sovereign over all things, but humanity is truly responsible. We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And 2 Thessalonians is chock full of this reality. Just look at the beginning of verse 13. To this he called you through our gospel. Right, so these believers were called. They were called through our gospel, meaning the gospel that was preached by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That it was preached by the apostles. And so the significance of pointing this out is that the gospel was preached to those who were called. And what did they do? They responded in faith, trusting in the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. So yes, God chose those he would save from the beginning, but those he chose must truly turn from their sin and trust Christ. No tension at all. Now before we move on, if you don't yet trust Lord, I appeal to you that you should not go a second longer without turning from your sin. Our greatest desire is that you would know and treasure Jesus. And so if you haven't seen it this morning, God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be messed around with. Your rebellious life will be dealt with. You at this very moment are an enemy of the king of the entire universe and it's clear that punishment is sure an eternal life of destruction away from the presence of God forevermore is what your future looks to hold. So I appeal to you to trust Jesus. The one who has the power to save. Who joyfully lived a life that you could never live in and of yourself. Who died in the place of sinners taking on the full punishment of eternal destruction that sinners like you and me deserve. Do you see that? In Jesus' death, he experienced the greatest bit of hell and drank it to the dregs that not a single one of his people, his chosen people, would ever taste a drop of hell for all of eternity. He said, you deserve hell and away from my glorious might. What does he do to believers? I'm going to give you your glorious might. I'm going to give you God forever. That's a God to enjoy, not to reject. Jesus came to die that his followers would obtain the glory of Christ. So Paul goes on to say in the latter part of verse 13, that God chose his people, and he chose them for good purposes, to save them for all eternity. Now just look with me. Later in that verse, verse 13, he writes sanctification, right? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, is Paul saying that this is how you become a believer? By sanctification, by believing, you know, by just understanding a truth? 
No, it's not, right? It's, it's a more than that. It's a deeper understanding of that. This is what he's talking about here. It's about the fruit of those who have been called by God from the beginning. You aren't saved by good works that you do. You aren't saved by the progressive sanctification. No, because you must be saved first before you're able to actually be sanctified by the Spirit. So they're saved and then are being changed from the inside out by the Spirit of God, and they truly believe the truth. They believe God's word. So here's the litmus test of true faith. There's no root without the fruit. We heard that last week from John 15. So here's my charge. Here's my desire for us that we would examine the fruit of our lives. And I think this is a wonderful tie to chapter 1, verse 3. Right? Paul gave thanks because their faith was growing abundantly in the love for one another. So let me ask you, in what ways have you seen the Lord doing a good work in your heart as you have been putting off sin and walking in righteousness this week? Are you pursuing holiness? Are you pursuing love for the body of Christ? Are you thoughtful about the things of God or is your busy schedule dictating your pursuit of him? If you have not asked yourself how you're doing spiritually, I'd like to encourage all of us just to pause and even today to ask a helpful question. How has God been transforming me in the last six months? What's God doing? So I think it's really helpful to read the Bible to help us understand how he's working, right? So Galatians 5, through 23 is extremely helpful. The fruit of the Spirit, right? So reading through the fruit of the Spirit and asking yourself at every Spirit-filled characteristic, how has God been growing me in love? What about patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, How is God working, stirring my heart to live and love like this? So when you navigate these areas that he's working, rejoice and excel still more. But if you're slowing down at some of the fruit, take a few more minutes and examine more. So not only does Paul proclaim here that the calling every believer experiences, right? He's not only charging the the call. But we get a glimpse at how this has taken place, which leads into be the means of our calling. Right, so verse 14 says, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins verse 14 by stating, to this he called you through our gospel. So he chose them, he called them from the beginning to be saved, that's what he called them to, salvation. But according to verse 13 and 14, what is it that we're saved from? Right? We're not saved from a bunch of wild beasts like Ignatius. We're not saved from a bunch of people. No, what we're saved from is from the wrath of God. Just think back to the punishment for the lost. Right? That's what you're saved from. So believers in Jesus are saved from God's mighty and holy wrath, whether the lost are away from his presence for all eternity. And so we need to really understand this. It's in Jesus that we obtain the glory of Christ. It's through the gospel that we're actually saved. It's all of grace. We're granted what we do not deserve. We deserved hell, and God graciously declared us righteous, right? He clothed us in Christ's righteousness, and that's the beauty of the gospel. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I get the fact that he called us to be saved, 
But what exactly does Paul mean when he says that he calls you through our gospel? Right? We touched on, touched on this briefly before. But this is an apostolic, this is a display of the apostolic gospel that was preached by those men. Right? Those who were called by God. They saw the risen Christ. And so they preached that to the church in Thessalonica, just as we saw earlier in Acts 17. So the apostles preached. People came to faith. And so in their calling through the gospel, now those who are believers in Christ are set on the path to being glorified in the future with God when death is silenced forever. And so it's with this reality we see the purpose of our calling. Again, look with me back at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel, so that, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Paul instructs us on the understanding of the fabric of our very salvation. Not only have you been chosen from the beginning, but you were saved from the wrath of God so that you would obtain the glory of Christ. Now that's all well and good, right? That sounds really nice for the Christian. But how is it that we can possibly obtain the glory of Jesus? How does the Bible even speak of this? Well, it's helpful just to break down what it looks like, what it means to actually obtain the glory of Christ. And so it really means that the Christian actually possesses, gains, or even shares in Christ's glory. You know, when I was a little kid, uh, there was this one child who would come by my house sometimes, and uh, him and I loved uh, the same thing. We love superheroes. And this guy had this Batmobile. I mean, it was shiny, red, sparkly, the wheels moving around, it would make sounds. And so I would look at that Batmobile, and I'd be like, man, I just want to hold it. I want to hold it. And I'd get close, and I'd go to touch it, and he'd say, no! And he'd push me over, and I'd get really upset, and I have very fond memories of that child ever since. <laughs> but the problem with this boy, right, this this kid who would never let me touch his Batmobile, the one that I had my eyes fixed on all the time, he was stingy. He said, this is mine. The Lord Jesus is in no way like that kid. Praise God. No, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead so that he would not hoard his glory from his people, but what? But that in one day, in future glory, he might give, share, give us his resurrected glory with his resurrected bride without the stain of sin forever. That's glory. That is glorious. So when does this take place? In the future. Just look back at chapter 1, verse 10. When he, the Lord Jesus, comes, that's future tense, so on that day to be, right? What, what is, what is going to happen? He's going to glorify his saints, right? On that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So when Christians die, right? If you are trusting in the Lord, this is your story. When we die, we will be absent from the body and we will be present with the Lord. 
But that isn't where the obtaining of the glory comes. That's not what Paul's getting at. Paul's speaking directly to a future day. Paul's speaking of the Christian's hope of future glory, which is when the Lord returns and raises up his people and we're made new in his likeness. And so when we, his people, are glorified, we will image our God perfectly. That is when the glory of Christ will be obtained. That is the moment when we will experience what 2 Thessalonians is speaking of, when Jesus' glory is seen in us. I mean, just listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, right, the right here and the right now, even if you're not being persecuted, this is what Paul calls suffering, right? It, and he says, it's not the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now just notice the contrast, right? Suffering in the present, glory to be revealed. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but who? We ourselves. Why? Because we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Now, some of you may have remembered this, but I had a car a few years ago. It was a 1996 Chevy Cavalier Red, and the name was Clifford. And so my car was banged up. It wasn't in the greatest of condition, but I would drive in in the wintertime to work, and one time I pulled up to the traffic light, and I'm sitting there just thinking, waiting, and then I see smoke in the front of my car, and I'm like, is that my car? Is my car going to blow up? And then the, the light turns green, and we go, and I realize it's the exhaust in front of me, but I'm terrified that my car was going to blow up because it was in that bad of condition, so I was groaning for a new car, and it still hasn't come, right? But that is... Along the lines of what we see here on a much larger scale, we, will, we have a dingy, broken, rickety-boned body right now. Some of us more than others. But here's the beauty. One day, it'll be resurrected. A new body. Perfected, image-bearing, image-restored bodies. No sin, but only glory and goodness. That's God's promise that we see here. Now just listen to the end of this section, Romans 8.30. Paul says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see Paul's logic? Those whom God called, elected to salvation from the beginning of the world, are called to be glorified in future days, to be changed, to put off the imperishable, to put on the perishable, new bodies without sin, perfectly in his likeness forever. That's awesome. That is so good. And so just to add another layer of delicious icing on this theological juggernaut of a cake, right? G.K. Beale, a well-known New Testament scholar, comments on this reality. He says this, Paul called you to this salvation through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has chosen his people for a salvation in order to bring about his glory, 
not merely salvation, but the way in which God brings us to salvation highlights his glory. So God's ultimate purpose, even in in giving us, obtaining the glory of Christ, it's that God would be magnified. It's God-centered. It's not man-centered, which is absolutely right. Just hear the words again from chapter 1. I'm going back and forth in chapter 1 because it's really important to the context of our passage. Right? He said, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Here it is. I love this statement. So that, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So his works, he saved us through the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, so that you would share, obtain, possess the glory of Jesus, because in obtaining the glory of Christ, Christ is magnified. He's exalted. He's known. He's treasured. His excellence is on display for all of the world to see. That's the glory of the Bible, that the earth would be filled with his glory. And it takes place when Christ glorifies his people. Now, I was driving this week, and you know what my response was when I was thinking through the reality of this truth? I said, are you kidding me? Who wouldn't want this? This is wonderful truth for the body of Christ, that even in the midst of all of the junk that you have to go through, there's one day where you are going to be with the great God of the universe, glorified in his lovely goodness. That's beautiful news for the Christian. So his people will gain Christ's glory when death is defeated once and for all. So the seventh reason Jesus came to die, that his people would be glorified in future glory. But now the question must be raised. Why is it that Paul emphasizes the hope of future glory when the curse is no more and when we will reign in glory in our resurrected bodies in the presence of our truly resurrected king? Why? Because in the midst of this persecution, the greatest relief to our present affliction is a greater delight in future glory. And that's how Paul encourages the church here. We're going to see it in three different application points for both this church and also for the one in Thessalonica. So future glory produces perseverance. Two, future glory invigorates obedience. And three, future glory inflames joyful anticipation. So A, future glory produces perseverance. Now just look with me at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now look what Paul does right after instructing them on future glory. What does he do? He commands them, okay, now guys, stand firm. Hold to the word of God. Hold to the apostles' teaching, which is extremely encouraging for us to hear this morning. So right now, you may be abundantly overwhelmed. You may have a ton of stuff going on in your life. But the hope of our future glory with Jesus is the motivation for us to remain steadfast even when we're stressed out in in the midst of persecution and in difficulty. So God has promised that we will obtain the glory of Christ. 
but how can we find the energy to stand firm right now? That may be what you're thinking right now. There is no possible way I'm standing firm. It's too hard. But look at chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. This is the prayer that Paul then prays for this church in Thessalonica. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct their hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. There we find the strength to persevere. So we aren't hanging around just enjoying our own laurels or our own abilities. No, we cling to Christ. We trust him and call to mind his steadfastness in the midst of persecution. So we must recognize that Jesus came to die so that even in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our hurt, the midst of our anguish, that we would find comfort in the fact that God isn't done yet. He's not finished yet. So when a loved one dies of cancer, or you get evicted from your house, or you bomb the math test, or you break both your legs, or you get COVID for the third stinking time, you can say with joy, these trials are light and momentary. My God isn't done yet. My God withholds no good thing from me. If Jesus was immovable in the, pre- in the presence of death, I am surely called to count the cost and stand firm as he's commanded. Christ died that I would obtain his glory forever. And it's going to happen. But not only does, does Jesus, and well, does the Bible promise future glory, it doesn't only promise future glory to produce perseverance, but also future glory invigorates obedience. Just look at chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Right? It speaks of the one who has loved us, given us eternal comfort, good hope through, the grace, through grace. Here's a command. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So not only does future glory bring about steadfastness, but we're told here that future glory invigorates, stirs up our work and our word. So those that know that Christ has saved them and will obtain the glory of Jesus, it gives us every single reason in the entire world not to only persevere, but to continue in faithful obedience to God. Because our trust in God is showcased in our obedience and love to him. Just notice once again, one of the things that Paul prays for in chapter 3, verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So as we stand firm, we work and obey Christ, and we do it with joy. So let me ask you, does your unshakable belief in the future glory of God impact your obedience to Christ right now? Does your understanding of our future glory revamp the way that you work? What about revamp the way that we're quick to evangelize to the lost? Do you work to the glory of God and the power of the Spirit resting on what God has done for you at Calvary and remain transfixed on what will be revealed in the last day? My greatest desire is that would truly be the case with our people here. I pray that we truly do as the Bible clearly commands here. And lastly, future glory inflames joyful anticipation. So the hope of what lies ahead should actually change how we live. 
So brothers and sisters, are we hungry for heaven right now? Are you hungry for heaven? Do you desire the future day when we are in the presence of Christ with fullness of joy, glorified in his likeness? There's a man named Ichabod Spencer. He was a New York pastor from a few centuries ago. And he tells this story in his pastoral sketches of a house visit he took to speak to a woman who was on her deathbed, her dying moments. And he recounts that she told him this one little uh, phrase. She said, you have often told us in your sermons that afflictions are benefits to God's children. I find it so now. I have dreadful pain, but I have precious peace. My Savior makes good to me his promises. I have always felt that a Christian ought to die rejoicing. In dying, we are going to our Savior. Christ is with me all the time and gives me peace, sweet peace to my soul. I have been afraid my faith would fail when I come to the waves of the Jordan, but I trust him, and I am happy to think that I have got so near to home. Spencer records that she died with the words of joy literally on her lips. He says, her praise commenced on earth and finished in heaven. (laughs) So both this woman and Ignatius of Antioch understood that this world was fleeting and Christ promises joy in his presence, glorified in his likeness for all our days without the taste of death on our lips and only the sweetness of Christ forevermore. And how can we joyfully anticipate this reality right now? Look with me at chapter 3, 3. Here's the anchor. The Lord is faithful. So we take our God at his word, knowing that that which he has promised will truly come to pass. In fact, we can actually live in the present life right now like the woman from Proverbs 31 who laughs in the face of the time to come. This is what I want for our church. This is what I'm praying for our church and the people of God, holding to the promises of glory in our heads and also in our hearts by faith as we await our future reality the return of Christ, and the glorifying of his saints. Revelation 22, 3-5. No longer will there be anything accursed. That alone is awesome. Curse no more. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And what will happen? They will reign forever and ever. This is what we hunger for. This is what we wait for. May God give us the grace to stand firm in the midst of trials, with eyes fixed on our future glory, where we enjoy and then truly obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are 12 reasons that we're looking at that Jesus came to die. Number seven, so that we might obtain the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, how good you truly are that you have seen fit to take worthless, despicable people, enemies of the cross of Christ, 
And you not only make us alive, not only do you give us the power to put off sin and walk in righteousness, but you promise to glorify your people in Christ's likeness for all eternity. God, we pray that we have stamina, that we would fight hard to live for your glory, not for our own, that we would stand firm in this present time, realizing that there is glory that awaits. Lord, we pray that you would be working in our hearts and minds, cultivate a godly desire for the future, and pray that we would do all this, not for our own good, but for your glory alone. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.